Welcome to the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences podcast. My name is Michael Beal. I'm an assistant professor at California State University, Northridge, and a speech pathologist at UCLA Medical Center. Before I get started with our conversation with Dr. Julie Wamba, I want to take just a moment to encourage listeners to consider becoming a member of the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences, also known as ANCDS. ANCDS is a nonprofit professional association supporting clinicians who serve individuals with neurologic communication disorders. ANCDS provides education and training directed at promoting the highest standard of evidence-based care. Besides the educational opportunities, such as access to articles on evidence-based practice or continuing education provided at our annual scientific meeting, ANCDS provides a path for clinicians specializing in neurologic communication disorders to be recognized for their expertise. This is done through a rigorous board certification process. More information about board certification can be found at our website at ancds.org. I'm currently the chair of the certification board, and if any SLPs have questions beyond what's provided on our website, I'd be happy to try and answer them via email. You can email me at michael.beal at csun.edu, and Beal is spelled B as in boy, I-E-L. As a reminder, episode six of our podcast contains a discussion of the board certification process with current members of the certification board. Okay, now on to our guest. Dr. Julie Wambaugh is a professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at the University of Utah and is a research career scientist at the VA Salt Lake City Healthcare System. She teaches graduate courses in aphasia and motor speech disorders. She's been conducting research focused on clinically applicable treatments for apraxia of speech and aphasia for many years and has published extensively on these topics. Her research has been funded for many years by the Department of Veterans Affairs. She's been chair of the Apraxia of Speech Treatment Guidelines Writing Committee and is currently an active member of that committee. Dr. Wamba is an ASHA fellow. To begin our conversation, I asked Dr. Wamba how she got interested in communication disorders and in research. Uh, Well, um, I came from a family of educators, and I knew I always wanted to do something related to the field of education, but did not want to have a classroom full of children. <clears throat> and my father uh, taught fifth grade for his whole life, and he suggested that I come and talk to his speech language pathologist because, again, he knew I was interested in education but not classroom education per se. So I had done a little shadowing uh, of the speech pathologist and, and uh, talked with her. And around the same time, one of our good family friends, there was a daughter that was my age, was in a very terrible car accident, had a very significant head injury, was in a coma for many months, and recovered quite well from it. And her family uh, just raved about their speech language pathologist. So that kind of 
sealed the deal for me in terms of a tentative major in college. And uh, so after my master's, I decided I really wanted to pursue research and pursue a PhD and uh, went to Penn State and had intended to, uh, was intending to go into the area of traumatic brain injury. Uh, There wasn't anybody specifically in that area then, and I needed to stay in Pennsylvania for family reasons. And uh, Cindy Thompson had just joined the faculty there, and her area was aphasia, and the the brain uh, connection there was what got me going in the direction of aphasia rather than traumatic brain injury. And she had, of course, a very significant interest in single-subject experimental design, and that's why I have a a very significant interest in that as well. That's how I started out. And I worked as a clinician between my bachelor's degree and master's and between my master's and PhD. And so I had um, uh, a real desire to do clinically applied research, which meshed well with the interest in single subject design. Uh, The way I got into apraxia of speech rather than just aphasia is that after I got my PhD, I did what was essentially a postdoc in Pat Doyle's laboratory. And Pat Doyle had worked at, uh, gotten his PhD from University of Pittsburgh and was working in the area of syntax, which was very closely related to the area that I had, the direction that I had gone with Cindy Thompson, which was syntax training. And in joining his laboratory, Um, He encouraged me to expand the focus of that lab, and in working with our aphasic patients, as you well know, sometimes it's very difficult to differentiate uh, what is contributing to the communication disorder, most significantly, whether it's the motor speech disorder or the aphasia, and um, apraxia of speech became an area of interest for me because of that, because of wanting to expand the focus of the lab, as well as wanting to learn more about how motor speech disorders were contributing to the overall communication problems of our, pers- our participants with aphasia, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and uh, Mick McNeil was there at Pitt. Was he there then? Mick came, uh, he was there for a year or two before I left. I left in 1996, mm. and I think Mick was there a few years before that. So, um Mick was very helpful and also became a mentor to me along with Pat um, as I was starting to write grants and um, really develop my research focus. You know, I, I worked for the VA in Pittsburgh for three or four years. So I'm very Now, when were you there? I was there from like 2006 to 2010. Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I, I helped um, Pat develop the pirate, the intensive. I was going to say treatment. with the pirate, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, just a great, great, it's just one of the best speech pathology clinics I've ever been exposed to at the, at the Pittsburgh VA. Um, and I think it's been that way for some time. And that kind of speaks to Pat's leadership, I think, there in that clinic. Um, I'm curious when you were when you were doing clinical work, what kind of settings were you in? I was primarily in the schools, and I did home health as well. So I 
started out in um, after my bachelor's degree in an intermediate unit in Pennsylvania, and they um, their services are contracted out by various school districts. And so I served um, uh, various parochial schools. I had five schools in the Lancaster County area, and so I had very large caseload that's typical of a school SLP. And then when I, after I got my master's degree, I also went back into the schools. Um, my husband, who was then my fiancé, was in West Virginia. So I landed there and um, went into the schools. But I knew I eventually wanted to be getting into the neurogenics area. And so a, a friend and I did home health together and shared a home health caseload as well as, as uh, working in the schools. Do you remember? And then clinically, were... I... No, go ahead. With aphasic patient, yeah, I remember my first aphasic patient, yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, on our own, yeah. And this this person, um, my colleague, was from WVU, and I was from Penn State. And you don't get a lot of neurogenic experience in, you know, or neither one of us had a lot of neurogenic experience. We'd had courses, and and so we basically were holding each other's hand. We'd go, see, we were making no money because we were both seeing all of our patients together. And uh, our first aphasic patient was a patient who basically had um, had no usable speech and language and really didn't know that she could produce speech and language at all. And we asked her to sing. And she just did not know that she could do this. And that was the first speech that she had produced was in the context of singing. And it was, you know, a really rewarding for all, all three of us um, to, to have her realize that oh yes I still can produce some language in the context of music so but we did see quite a few of uh, patients with aphasia and that's primarily actually who we were seeing with yeah. the uh, home health caseload. So you, when you said you were seeing patients together you were both in the same room together or we'd you go together yeah. Oh you go together. <laughs> no we'd, cool. go, we'd go together. <laughs> that's really uh, that would be fun. It was fun. Yeah yeah huh. Uh, can't bill twice though. <laughs> no, you can't. No, I think we were, really weren't making any money, but yeah. it was good experience and, uh, yeah. Do you remember your first client with a noticeable apraxia of speech? Um, well, some of those of course did. Yeah. Uh, but back in those days, um, in my master's program, really the term apraxia of speech was just be starting to be used. Um, I think in at least in textbooks and um, I graduated in 82 and mm. if you think about the Wurtz et al. textbook that came out in 84, that book wasn't even out yet. So I think I heard the term apraxia speech in passing. Mm -hmm. um, in, uh, in my master's training program and some of those patients very definitely did have apraxia speech that I did see but after when I went back to school then, uh, mid, I guess 84 is when I went back for my PhD, Cindy Thompson's area of research was focused on non-fluent patients, patients with non-fluent aphasias. Mm. And all of those patients had apraxia of speech. And by then, you know, the textbook was out, it was more awareness of apraxia of speech. And, and all of those patients did have, uh, to some degree, apraxia of speech. And again, I think my interest in trying to differentiate you know, is this really a word retrieval problem? Is this a motor speech initiation issue? Um, started to develop probably at that point in time. Yeah. When do you think the the 
the, the diagnosis, the entity of apraxia of speech became accepted. I'm not a apraxia of speech historian, but my impression is that, um, you know, there's been some controversies about what apraxia of speech is, maybe even in the past, whether it exists as a separate diagnosis. Do I have that right? Right, right. And the whole phonology, um, phonetic issue, um, you know, continued for a long time. And I'd say even into the early 90s, there was still some uh, controversy as to whether it was a phonetic motoric disorder, whether it was a phonological disorder. And along with that, I think there was still a lack of acceptance. People that were viewing it more as a phonological um, issue were, were tending to say, no, that this is a component still of aphasia and not a distinct disorder. And, and so I'd say into the early 90s, there was still some lack of acceptance probably. Hmm. And there probably still is some today. Yeah. yeah. Uh, why is that so? The, probably the, training the, background, hmm. you know, orientation. Yeah. 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 You know, I, I've seen you do kind of CEU activities for a proxy of speech and that you did recently. And you, you spent a fair amount of time going over the definition of a proxy of speech and comparing it to older definitions, even though those definitions were that shift in definition happened, gosh, maybe uh, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. But you still feel the need to do that. Huh? To update people on on what constitutes or what what are the differential diagnostic signs for proxy of speech? Oh yeah, and I always have people come up to me after I present and say, "Oh, I was still." And it tends to be a little bit older clinicians, perhaps, um, but saying that, oh, I, I really needed to change my way of thinking, and I really wasn't aware that this had shifted, and that kind of thing. So I think it's still still a bit of an issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, mo- moving on to, to research, I thought maybe we would just talk a little bit about what you've been up to lately. I, you seem pretty prolific, um, <laughs> so I, we can't talk about all of it. What are you working on now? Well, I have a very good lab, um, very accomplished research SLPs in my lab that I'm fortunate to have. And so, yeah, we do actually have a lot going on and um, try to publish as quickly as we can and not get backlogged. But we have a focus right now and have over the past several years on our apraxia speech treatment. We, uh, typically in our lab, we focus on apraxia speech treatment as well as aphasia treatment. We made a concerted effort a few years ago to focus maybe a bit more on the apraxia of speech than the aphasia. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are at the point right now where we have several studies that we're focusing on refining sound production treatment, which we've studied for a long time, really almost 20 years now, I guess, and um, getting it to the point where we can bring it to a, a clinical trial. And then there's another area of research that I, I want to come back to and talk about in a little bit, too, that combines it practice speech treatment with aphasia treatment that we're excited about. Uh, but with the um, sound production treatment, we just completed a grant um, supported by VARRD that examined the effects of 
practice schedule, specifically blocked versus random practice, on our SPT outcomes. And we published a few smaller scale portions of these data uh, in a, a few articles over the past couple years, but the larger group study um, has been accepted for publication in JSLHR and should be out, I think, in the fall. And with this study, we had 20 persons with apraxia of speech and aphasia uh, receive sound production treatment provided in a blocked fashion. So they had uh, words or, and or phrases that were selected based on specific sound targets. And so with the blocked practice, they would practice all the words that, that contained that one particular sound target, then they would practice all the words that contained the other sound target, so in a blocked fashion. Uh, so they all received blocked practice. They also all received randomized practice so that the sound targets were pre presented in, or the, the practice targets were presented in an unpredictable fashion. And so this was a crossover design um, done in the context of single subject experimental multiple baseline designs. And so that's how we were able to pr um, publish some of the data as we were obtaining those data. But from the group study, uh, we wanted to provide kind of an overall picture of it, uh, what are the effects of blocked versus what are the effects of random practice when we administer SPT. And basically um, what we found was that SPT pre presented in a blocked fashion and SPT presented in a random fashion both produced positive effects, as we've seen with blocked and our previous work with, with SPT. So when we looked at the group data together, there was a little bit of an advantage for random practice over blocked practice uh, for one of our outcome measures. So the outcome measures that we used to compare blocked and random were, were two different but somewhat related outcome measures. So we calculated effect sizes, and effect sizes are a measure of the magnitude of change from pretreatment, so our, our repeated measures pretreatment, to a period of time afterwards at a maintenance um, uh, phase measurement or at the end of treatment phase measurement. So we calculated effect sizes for each of our persons in the block condition, condition, each of our persons in the randomized condition. And there was no statistically significant difference for blocked and random when we looked at effect sizes. Now, effect sizes take into account a va um, variability in performance. We used another outcome measure that was a little bit different that did not account for variability, but was a pretty stringent outcome measure. Uh, it was uh, a measure that took the very highest baseline performance. So most of our, our patients will have a little bit of variability in their baseline performance. So they might be at 10% accuracy today. Next probe, they might be at 20% accuracy. Next probe, they might be at 5% accuracy. So we took their highest baseline performance, so the best they ever did in baseline, and compared that value to the value at follow-up and got a different value. So um, you're, are you following me? So I, with I me absolutely that it's a, am, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a uh, kind of stringent change score. And so for that value, uh, that, that different value over baseline, 
we did find an advantage for our random condition. And the advantage, I don't have my numbers with me right now, but we're on uh, the, the percent change difference between blocked and random was about almost 10% difference. And this was um, so, on treated items or, or on generalization? This was this was on treated items. Uh -huh. Now, there, good question, good reminder that there wasn't any difference in that that score or the effect uh, effect size score uh, for our generalization items. So there were that we saw change um, measured both with effect sizes and with the percent change score. But when we compared those changes for the blocked condition versus the random condition. For our untreated items, no difference. Hmm. Only for the uh, percent change over baseline was there uh, a benefit, additional benefit for the randomized condition. Yeah. You know, I have to back up just a little bit and apologize. Mm -hmm. I know you've published quite a bit in aphasia too, so I don't want our listeners to think that you're only a proxy of speech. Could you... For the listeners who maybe aren't super familiar with the principles of motor learning, can you just describe briefly what block practice is, what it's believed that it, how it's different from random practice in terms of benefits, et cetera? Right. So the motor learning literature is really pretty robust um, in terms of the, the effects that are seen with blocked versus random practice. And so... Blocked, again, is when we're practicing the same movement pattern um, in math prior to then practicing another movement pattern. So, so say, for instance, we're working on S initial words. Uh, we practice all of our S initial words before we then maybe move on to another target, which may be something like K initial words. Uh, random, we, we would be mixing those all up so that they're not predictable what's coming up next in the practice. And so in the motor learning literature and what would be expected, what we might expect to see then in the uh, speech motor practice would be that, but hadn't really been demonstrated to any extent, would be that with blocked practice during the treatment session itself, we would probably see faster acquisition or better performance more rapidly with blocked practice while we're doing our, our treatment. However, random practice has been consistently shown, or relatively consistently shown, to result in better maintenance and transfer. Mm. Uh, so, to different conditions, um, et cetera, than blocked practice. Why do they think that the random practice uh, results in better maintenance and, and transfer? Well, there's a couple different theories. Um, one of it has to do with um, when you're Doing block, blocked practice, there's no interference. You have to, you have to, you don't have to regenerate that target repeatedly. Right. It, it's there. Um, whereas when you're switching back and forth between uh, targets, then you're having to recall that item again. So you've got to generate that item again, and there's not, uh, there's more interference. So it's a kind of a depth of processing. Mm -hmm concept um, is part of it, but there's, there's different ways that people look at these effects, and we could spend many hours talking about, <laughs> well, super, about yeah. those. But, um, Superficially, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's random practice kind of reflects what happens in regular conversation more, right? I mean, we generate 
speech sounds randomly, so to speak. Right. It, it's more of a diff, it's it's a more difficult task if we think about it than saying the same, recalling the same pattern over and over, rather than having to go back and forth between different um, practice patterns. Yeah. You sent me that paper that you're talking about, that <clears throat> a copy of it, a draft of it, and um, my impression from reading it, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you were a little bit surprised that there weren't there wasn't a more robust difference between a blocked and random practice because the the motor learning literature for limb movements is more there is more of a robust difference it, it, did I, I interpret that right 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 and but in the limb literature more recent research has been directed toward looking at the complexity of the movement and of course speech is probably our most complex movement that we can do as humans and the uh, even in the limb literature doesn't hold as clearly when complexity is considered as part of uh, the whole picture yeah so maybe not so surprising from that that perspective yeah well it makes sense that you would want to practice in a repetitive blocked way things that are really complex well, I, what I think is um, a take-home message from this article that I hope people do take home um, is that um, everybody benefited from block, everybody benefited from random, um, and some patients did have a preference for one or the other, which we really didn't focus on a lot in that article. So, um, you know, I, I don't think a clinician can go wrong either way and should certainly take into consideration their patient's preference. Right, right. Just simply ask them, would you rather do this kind of practice or this kind of practice? Yeah. Are you finding this too hard? Is, you know, is this too stressful? Is, yeah. yeah. Is this too boring doing it this way, all in a blocked way, et cetera? Is there kind of a sweet spot for the number of blocked items do you target at one time or the number of items you randomly go through? Well, with sound production treatment, all of our past research has involved um, no more than targeting three items at a given time, unless we're going back and doing some booster treatment where they've already received treatment on particular targets. So uh, for SPT, I would say, you know, if, if you want to have the same results that we've seen in the past, probably stick to with randomizing two to three items. Um, more than that, you know, we don't have the data. Um, so that would be the caveat is that um, if you if you do want to treat more than four items, I don't know that you're going to get similar findings. Mm. I mentioned before we went on air that I asked for some questions on the Adult Speech Rehab Facebook group. Anybody who had any questions for you and one of the questions related to what we're talking about was, and I'll read it verbatim, I'd love to hear Dr. Wambaugh's thoughts on ways we should incorporate principles of motor learning when treating apraxia of speech. And then a, a second question, and any suggestions for determining likely trajectory of recovery, especially in cases of very severe apraxia of speech. Besides the blocked versus random practice, what other things should SLPs pay some attention to when thinking of uh, principles of motor learning? 
there really hasn't been a lot of research um, directed towards um, principles of motor learning in a systematic way. There's been a little bit of research. Um, Shannon Osterman Hula and et al. Um, did a little bit of work with feedback and when we should provide feedback um, and, and how we should time that feedback. Um, so I would take a suggestion thinking about feedback schedules, you know, do we want to give 100% feedback, reduce feedback schedule. She found that for a few participants there was a uh, better pattern, of, a better response when the reduced feedback schedule was given, but not for other patients. Uh, delaying the feedback, similarly she found for, I think, for one, one of her two participants that a delayed feedback provision was better. Um, so that's one area to think about, but I don't think we have any kind of uh, enough compelling evidence to say that somebody has to do this, but it's something to think about. Other than blocked and random, th there just really isn't uh, much research right now to say that things should be done a certain way. Um, and uh, actually that's one of the reasons we did our, went into the area of, of uh, principles of motor learning, specifically practice schedule with sound production treatment was a number of years ago at the clinical physiology conference, Dr. Jay Rosenbeck asked me, aren't you concerned that you're not doing SPT in a random fashion? And, and um, you know, my thinking was, well, no, there, there really aren't data to say that I should be doing this right now. Um, so I think for clinicians in general, they should be aware of principles of motor learning, consider them, but know that they, they should not be feeling a pressure to do uh, to implement principles of motor learning because the data aren't there yet to say that they should or that they shouldn't. Yeah, yeah. The other part of her question was uh, how do you... Trajectory? Yeah, trajectory, which to me suggests not just how much improvement a person can make, but kind of the slope of their improvement. Um, Right, right. We do not have those kind of data at all in the any of the apraxia speech treatment literature um, to suggest that. Now, with our single subject studies, we always, of course, um, probe performance outside the treatment session frequently. That's something that clinicians do not typically have a lot of time to do, um, but I think it's something that in, in the context of our treatment studies, we can say that, oh, if after 10 sessions there's no change and we, we're not seeing that in probes at all, maybe it's time to change direction. And I think clinicians are just going, at this point, going to have to do that as well. You know, yeah. be objective in their measurement about change and then um, determine, you know, I'd say it's a pretty safe bet for most patients that if you don't see change after 10 treatment sessions, at least with sound production treatment, um, you're probably not going to see change. Yeah, yeah. We haven't had that many patients that haven't responded, even really severe patients. So, um, you know, I, I think a, a period of trial therapy would be advisable, but I'm sorry that just, you know, we don't have the, the data, maybe someday we will, mm. <laughs> to predict, uh, to have predictions about trajectory, but um, not yet. Yeah. Those, the kind of single subject design methods of collecting data. Um, you're right. You don't see 
many working SLPs doing that. Uh, I've struggled to do it. I mean, I know I should, and I sometimes I do it, and sometimes I don't. Um, it does. It's not particularly hard. It takes planning, um, but uh, and it takes time. It, it does right, take yeah. time. Yeah, but you know, with with the praxis of speech, these kinds of targets, not really that much time. No, it's not like you're taking uh, you know half an hour out of your day. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe five to ten minutes it might take, right, yeah. Right, um, And it can be really satisfying to collect data in a way that allows you to really understand not just how much your client's improving, but also how they're improving. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Any other studies recently? You sent me a paper on uh, awareness, which I thought was really interesting because, and it was about, you know, whether or not persons with a praxis of speech have any difficulty being aware of their errors while they're speaking. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, this was done in conjunction with our blocked and random study. We started collecting these data. As you know, it, it's a, a long-held notion that people with a praxis of speech are highly aware of their errors. I mean, that was something that I was taught when we first started talking about apraxia speech back in the 80s, that, that these people know that they're making errors and they're very aware of them. And But in the course of doing treatment over many, many years, um, we've seen some patients who really appeared to have no idea about um, when they were making an error or when they weren't making an error. You'd get, you'd get feedback like, well, those were all great. And they'd say, really? And you'd say, well, no, those weren't, none of those were quite correct. And really? And they just were not able to self-monitor very well. And this seemed to be related somewhat to treatment outcomes. So we decided to do a brief little measure of how well patients could judge if they were making an error or not. And so we took the motor speech protocol um, that we typically use, which is the Duffy, uh, from the Duffy text, and when they produced the words in the protocol, uh, there's a section with uh, uh, 25 words, we asked them whether they thought they produced it correctly or not, and we gave more instruction than that, but then we um, tabulated how often they made the correct judgment, that they knew that there was an error, and, and said that there was an error or that they said it correctly and knew that they said it correctly. And not all patients with a practice of speech are very are good at judging when they make an error or not. Um, so just uh, again, we're just only collecting preliminary data right now, doing some preliminary analyses to see if this really does pertain to treatment outcome, but hopefully moving in that direction that this might be something that we need to consider maybe it might be a prognostic indicator, um, might also indicate a need to do a modification of treatment, maybe do a treatment that includes more self-monitoring training um, for some people. Now, some people were excellent at identifying their errors, um, 100%. Others, you know, missed the majority of their errors. So I thought an interesting study that pointed out that this is something that we need to be aware of, need to consider, in terms of our treatment planning and maybe in terms of future treatment development. Yeah. And then the other line of research we've got going on right now 
is uh, related to treatment intensity. And, you know, as you know, in the aphasia literature, there's been a good bit of research focused on treatment intensity, and the focus seems to be deriving from the neurorehabilitation literature in general that indicates that, that treatment matters, that more intense might be better. But when it comes to apraxia of speech, more may not be better because if we look at the motor learning literature, there's a, a lot of, a good bit of literature directed toward math practice versus distributed practice, which is where you have the same number of treatment sessions and with math, they're given in a more intense fashion, you know, a less distributed way and in distributed practice, they're, they're spread out. And um, in the motor learning literature, distributed practice seems to have um, results in better outcomes. So on one hand, with apraxia of speech being a motor disorder, the motor learning literature might suggest that distributed is better, but then the aphasia literature and the neurorehabilitation literature suggests that intense is better, which would be a, a more masked way of giving our treatment. So we just started a study about a year ago, and we're um, using sound production treatment again. We're doing mass what well, we're doing intense treatment, which is Three, three hours a day, three sessions of SPT a day, three hourly sessions of SPT a day, three days a week, so that's for intense, so nine hours a week. And then our non-intense, um, which is our, we call traditional, is one hour a day, three days a week. So same number of days per week, but three hours a day versus one hour a day. Each phase of treatment, be it intense or non-intense, has 27 SP, hours of SPT, so same number of overall sessions. And again, we're doing it where, using a design where each individual gets intense, each individual gets non-intense. And within each treatment phase, there are three different sound targets within that phase. So it, we're not, we never work at just the sound level, so it might be words, might be phrases, short sentences, but focused around a, a given target. So three targets per phase. And the reason that we do this is that we've seen and other investigators have seen that response to treatment can, of course, be related to sound targets. So some sounds are harder, some sounds are easier. So this way we've got three different sound targets within each that will hopefully help to balance, that should balance that out. And so very preliminary findings so far, but what we found, with uh, we have a paper that's under review right now, with five participants, all five participants had better generalization findings, so generalization to untrained exemplars of what they were working on. So whenever we do sound production treatment, we have items that we work on, a limited number, like eight to 10, and then we also measure generalization to items that we've never worked on but are, that, that are the same as what we're working on. So for example, if we're working on ST words, words that start with ST will have 10 words that we work on, 10 ST words that we don't work on. So what we found in this intensity study preliminarily is that generalization has been better for the traditional, for the non-intense treatment application for our untreated items. Um, so for the, for the treated items, two of our five participants had better response with the non-intense. 
So looking so far, like non-intense might be a better option. Hmm. Uh, but we've, we've got a lot more subjects to run. Um, but uh, kind of interesting, exciting stuff for for us as we look at these data. Yeah, you know, my, my kind of very anecdotal experience doing the intensive aphasia treatment program um, in Pittsburgh. So we were doing, best of my recollection, about five or six hours of treatment a day, five days a week, a half day on Saturday for a month. And two or three times, we'd gotten individuals who had really had quite severe aphasia and very severe apraxia of speech. And they really had not made any substantial improvements, even over a fairly prolonged period of outpatient treatment. We took them in and they did well based on their severity. And my sense at the time was that at least for these really, really impaired individuals, there was that intensity was needed. You know, it wasn't just, I think, for them, right? So that something could happen. Uh, the other thing was that, I don't know if I can put this into words really well, but when you're a therapist and you're seeing somebody every day for a long period of time, day after day, you kind of get really saturated <laughs> with their be with oh. their behaviors and kind of understanding them and um, your ability to cue them becomes a lot more effective, um, sensitive. You know, so for example, I would not infrequently have the experience where kind of the first week of intensive treatment, not a lot is happening. And then, you know, that's a terrible place to be as a therapist because, you know, people come from out of state, they I think they have high expectations for a special program like this, and you don't want them to leave after working so much for a month without noticeable gains. So a lot of pressure on the therapist. So oftentimes at, at about that week week mark, it was like things weren't happening the way they should be. And then there would be some kind of breakthrough. And, and oftentimes that happened together with me and the client. We would realize something had happened and we would follow that mm -hmm. lead. You know, I may be going a little off topic here uh, because I'm kind of going into another territory, which is, you know, do therapists benefit from intensive treatment? <laughs> right? In the sense that they become better therapists for their patients um, because they're not seeing them, you know, once or twice a week and amongst many, many other people. And, you know, when you're only thinking about one person for a month, um, that is different than having to think about 20 to 40 people. Um, oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. 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 Now, SPT doesn't. I was gonna say SPT doesn't allow a lot, lot of clinician flexibility, especially in a research context. Yeah. Um, one level it does is is when you do your articulatory cueing, mm. 
Um, so that's where there, there is some clinician flexibility in there, but um, I don't know that we would see the benefit necessarily that you're describing with SVT because we try to be so controlled across clinicians and there's only so much flexibility that the clinician can do. Yeah. <laughs> How do they tolerate yeah. that much treatment, that intensive amount of treatment? Well, we did a, well, they, they do well, the, 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 the clients anyway. Um, we did a pilot study for this a couple of years ago to see if it was even feasible. And that study we did four hours a day, four days a week. And we had, we did two clinicians per, per patient because it was too much on the clinicians. Patients loved it. <laughs> um, they thought it was great. <laughs> um, but, too um, rote for the clinicians? And, but the, and the clinicians, clinicians liked it, but it, it, you know, it did get a little rote, but they did, you know, they got a lot of satisfaction in seeing a lot of progress fast. Yeah. Um, you know, you do see your progress very quickly when you're in that intense um, phase of treatment versus the the uh, non-intense. But yeah, I remember the, before we did our first uh, pirate program, I was really kind of worried that after the first day or two, uh, my client and I we would just be tearing our hair out from the kind of the tedious nature of doing the same thing over and over again. I think I did maybe 12 of those one month um, sessions. And every time as we went along, the, the patients, the clients were just more and more into it. As a matter of fact, oftentimes at about the three week mark is kind of when you hit your stride and your rhythm. You know, and you really start mm -hmm. to feel like things are happening and then, you know, they have to go home. Um, so that was surprising for me because it jives with what you've seen. I, I have a, a, a couple of my own apraxia speech questions. <laughs> Is that mm -hmm. okay? <laughs> sure. So I, I'm curious, do you think that there's some aspect of apraxia of speech that just doesn't respond to treatment? as well as other things. So for example, that people in a practice of speech generally respond better to treatments to improve their articulation, but changes in prosody are kind of harder won. Well, most treatments, even the ones that are rate and rhythm treatments, have been focused on articulation. So there really are almost no evidence-based treatments out there that have targeted prosody. And, and part of that, um, and we typically have not measured that. Uh, we've done a little bit of measurement of duration, and not necessarily as an aspect of prosody. Um, but beyond that, I don't have um, a good handle on whether how hard that is to change. We've had some patients with milder practicing speech, and and they're the ones that seem to be most bothered by the little bit of slower rate, which then impacts their, their pro, it's associated with their, you know, disturbance of prosody. And honestly, I don't think there are any empirically based treatments that I'm aware of that that specifically target that. You know, I've I've been wanting to and haven't done it yet. Um, have been wanting to do the contrastive stress treatment that works at all. You know, back in the 80s, we're advocating. Um, we did, um, my one former doctoral student, Dallin Bailey, who now has his PhD, um, incorporated contrastive stress into a language treatment that he did 
with people with apraxia, speech, and anaphasia, and he really liked it. But honestly, we did not measure the impact on prosody per se. But there's a lot of work to be done in that area, and I think that it'll probably be more with people with mild apraxia, speech, that it'd be appropriate for. You know, the other folks have, I think, so much more disruption at a very basic level uh, in terms of their articulatory abilities that it's hard to get to the prosody because there's such a disruption there and I don't know that you'd necessarily see it until articulation is a little bit more uh, is a little bit more facile if you know what I mean that right that so that, that when articulation becomes easier and more automatic then right then rate will be there and then, then maybe some of those other aspects of prosody can be targeted, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I've always felt that, you know, I, I've liked the concept of contrastive stress drills and practice, and I think there's a lot of potential there, but just to, I personally have not gotten uh, the time or ability to uh, investigate that yet. It's mm -hmm. on our to-do list, but yeah. All right. Maybe I'll What's have your to take look on into that? that. Think... Well, <laughs> I have a client right now in, in, who has uh, Broca's aphasia and apraxia of speech, and her articulation is not perfect, um, but it's relatively good. She's very concerned about her speech rate. I think that's, as far as her speech goes, that's her primary concern. So I'm, I'm kind of at the stage right now. This was a selfish question on my behalf. I'm right now trying to think about, uh, you know, maybe ways to help her work on that. I, th I thought I remembered reading a study that was doing um, metrical pacing, that maybe the focus wasn't on rate, but there was a finding that for one or more subjects, there was in at least some context and increase in rate. Do you? Well, um, yeah, Ziegler and colleagues have, have used metrical pacing and they focused on um, disfluency as well as, they, so they measured their outcomes were articulatory errors as well as disfluency. And they compared their MPT to non-pacing therapy, which could have been almost anything the clinician wanted to do as long as it did not involve pacing. So it was more probably articulatory kinematic treatments rather than any, and, but definitely no pacing. They found that both treatments improved articulation, so fewer error, articulatory errors, but only metrical pacing improved disfluency, reduced disfluency. Um, mm. I don't know that if they, I can't recall if they measure, measured rate per se. Yeah. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, uh, their metrical pacing was they were actually taking like recordings of real sentences and phrases and marking out the beats, so to speak, so that it wasn't rigid. Right. It had like, the the nat it had the natural rhythm rather than with metronomic pacing, which doesn't have the natural rhythm. Yeah, yeah and I, I like wonder it much if that better. would be really... Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, whether how easy that would be to do clinically, yeah, <laughs> to, to yeah. get the stimuli programmed and... and uh, but I like the concept better, um, certainly. And if the, we've done a few um, studies where we've done the metronomic pacing, 
And, you know, some of the complaint has been with that, that from the participants is that they don't like sounding, uh, having that robotic type of sound Mm. that you get when you don't have the natural uh, rhythm of, of represented in the syllables. So, yeah, I like it. And uh, we'll have to talk to Dr. Ziegler to see how hard it is. I've done some of the metrical pacing too, and I've had similar complaints that, with the metronomic, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that uh, they sound robotic. I'm thinking of one client in particular, a, a kind of ataxic dysarthria, uh, explosive loudness, and uh, oh, he uh-huh. went through a he went through a long period of treatment where they were kind of just focusing on reducing his loudness, and that wasn't really effective. And then we started working on um, metron- metronomic. Is that the right word? Mm-hmm. metronomic pacing and that managed his loudness problems um, okay. and his loudness was so bad that it was like you could hear him he in the rehab facility you know hall, three halls down <laughs> oh um, wow <laughs> yeah yeah and and dis, it caused distortion and he was not real intelligible and man, it improved his intelligibility and kind of the acceptability of his speech. Mm-hmm. But he hated sounding robotic, <laughs> even though he had achieved all these other gains. Um, and people uh-huh. generally told him he sounded better. So, huh. I know, yeah. Um, well, uh, let's see. There are just a couple more questions from Facebook. Maybe we could go over those real quick and then we'll call it a day. Sure. Okay. Um, So uh, one question goes back to what we were talking about right at the beginning, I think, in terms of the current diagnosis of aphasia. And it says many SLPs diagnose aphasia with paraphasias and word finding deficits when in fact apraxia can be what is driving the errors. Help us in understanding how to differentiate the two to make a correct diagnosis, as this will greatly impact a therapy plan. Well, I'll make a plug. Um, since we are getting along here on time, I'll make a plug mm-hmm. for the Apraxia Speech Rating Scale, the, which is out of Mayo Clinic. Uh, the first publication is 2014. Um, Strand et al. 2014, and at the Motor Speech Conference a year ago, Heather Clark presented uh, their some findings from their uh, revised working version of the ASRS. Uh, they've um, it, it's still a work in progress, but clinicians can find the entire original version in the 2014 article, and the ASRS. Um, has excellent sensitivity and specificity uh, that should be very helpful for clinicians to make a, a correct diagnosis of uh, praxis of speech. And so they would use, there's a rating scale, a five-point rating scale, zero to four, that's explained in the article. They've, they've, manip- they've changed it a little bit in the newer version, but substantially the same. Um, and so uh, a number of items, 16 in the original, I want to say, I think, 13 in the revised characteristics that 
uh, are associated with apraxia of speech are rated as to how frequently they occur. Some items are um, seen with apraxia of speech and with aphasia, some items with apraxia of speech and dysarthria, and again, some items are apraxia of speech alone. Uh, but you get a rating for each of the items in the ASRS. Then you get a, you tally your score uh, based on your ratings of each of your items. You get an overall score, and I believe their score of eight is where you get kind of a sweet spot for correctly identifying AOS as well as for not incorrectly identifying something else as being AOS. So. Um, I'd encourage clinicians to take a look at the ASRS. And then Kiri Ballard and colleagues, 2016 um, Neuropsychologia article, they um, did a relatively large scale study examining various factor, uh, various behaviors that have in the literature been identified as being uh, perhaps beneficial in diagnostically identifying um, AOS. And that they came, they identified two behaviors in particular that were very good at differentiating AOS from aphasia with phonemic paraphasia. And those were increased errors with words of increasing length. It was a modification of the ABA2 subtest scoring. And then a measure of relative vowel duration in three syllable words. So, um, three-syllable words that specifically that have a weak, strong, weak stress pattern, so like potato. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So they, they did a durational measure of relative syllable durations and found that to be those two factors to be, those two behaviors to be, again, the words of increasing length, increasing errors there, and then this relative syllable duration to be very good at differentiating apraxia of speech from aphasia with phonemic paraphasia. Lots of other interesting things in, in the, that article in the vowel as well. durations. I'm sorry? Go ahead. Uh -huh. And the vowel durations. Uh, the vowel durations, that was something they they were judging per, just perceptual judgments? Well, they did it acoustically. Uh, they did okay. um, durational, acoustic durational measures. So, and they're hoping to automatize this, I believe that it would be easy for clinicians to do. But when you think back to the perceptual analog of that, where you would have um, equal stress on these multisyllabic words, you know, with the uh, typically accompanied by the increased intersyllabic intervals, that, that would be your perceptual analog to, yeah, yeah. to that. So, so interesting article um, and one that's very, very good to take a look at. Yeah, I'll post uh, um, links to both of those on the show notes for this oh, podcast. Good. So, yeah. Well, there's one final question, and it's kind of long, so I'll, I'll try and paraphrase okay. it. <laughs> it. It's basically basically asking for your input on profiles, apraxia of speech profiles that have better or not so good prognoses. So. You know, I guess that would be related to severity, maybe etiology, and possibly kind of subtypes? Um, I'll qualify this and say that we don't have evidence right now at all mm. to do yeah. that. Um, there haven't been a lot of really severe patients in the literature. 
and personally I haven't worked with a lot of really severe patients and there's only a few treatment protocols out there for people who who are basically mute who don't have any speech at all at any point yeah. so so we don't know a lot about uh, in terms of any kind of evidence base for people with more severe proxy of speech I would say maybe per, again I hate to even speculate but I, I do think awareness of errors and ability to self-monitor may have prognostic potential and should be considered when you select your treatment. So if, if there's perhaps nothing in your treatment that is going to promote increased self-monitoring skills or increased ability to, to, to be aware of errors, that um, maybe that might be problematic in terms of a treatment match for that particular profile. Um, in yeah. terms of etiology, I'm trying to think of any data that I've seen relative to etiology and outcome, and I can't say that I've seen anything for a of speech treatment. Um, have you? No, I mean, I, I, I'm not aware know, of the any, first yeah, thing yeah, that comes yeah. to mind is the primary progressive apraxia of speech. Well, uh, yeah, Obviously, sure. That's a Certainly, degenerative yeah, yeah, disease. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah. But other than that, no. No, I can't say that. Yeah, I don't have a good answer to that, and I I would say that there there isn't an evidence base to address that right now, and hopefully there there will be in the future. But that's going to have to be, I think, yeah. more a clinical experience guided yeah. issue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Wamba, um, thank you very much. Uh, you're doing some really really interesting, and I think valuable work. Uh, if speech pathologists or other researchers want to find out more about what you're doing these days, or where can they find you? Well, they can always, they're always welcome to email me at julie.womba at health.utah.edu. And if they go to the University of Utah's website and they can search me on there or go to our Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders. Um, right now it's under construction um, concerning our lab, but within the next week or two, our lab information and what we're doing um, should be posted on that CSD website. So uh, those are places that you can find me. And um, like I said, I'm always happy to get questions from clinicians via email. Great. I will email you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, again, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ANCDS podcast. Please visit the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences at ancds.org. You can find our other podcasts there. You can also subscribe to our podcasts at iTunes and find them on SoundCloud.